wonderful. Now, the, the really good news about baby dedications, I'm feeding back a little bit. I don't know, are we, are we good? Do you want me to, is the battery going perhaps? Because um, we, can, we can change the battery if we need to really quickly. Uh, we get cake. Oh, now you wake up. We have cake. Tom and Louise and family brought cake. I know you saw it as you came in. Um, so thank you for, for that gift. And I know you guys are good at eating. But please make sure you say hi to Tom and Louise as, uh, as you grab uh, some cake later as well. Are we going to change this battery? Or are we good? We're all right. Okay. I'll just ignore the, the, the echo. Um, I need to uh, just give you, bring you up to speed a little bit with what we've been doing recently as I just pull out my, uh, my different notes here. Um, We've been working through the Ten Commandments, and the scripture that we're going to land on this morning is Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. You have a piece of paper in your hand, I hope, that was given to you as you came in with some notes as to what I'm going to be saying. Um, also, you can find and follow with version right online there. Uh, you can uh, scroll through and see some, uh, see some information as you go. So we got you covered, and the scriptures will appear behind me as well. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16 says this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Some versions say testimony. You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. And then the uh, New Testament equivalent you can find in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. And Paul says this, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. As we've worked through the Ten Commandments, we've seen that the commandments, the whole list of commandments, you can split into two sections. The first four commandments are the way that we should relate to God, and then the six commandments that follow are how we relate to one another. They are not optional extras as Christians. They are not something that we go, oh, well, you know what, I haven't murdered anybody recently, so I can distance myself from that command. Or I've not committed adultery, or I've not done this, I've not done that. They're not a pick and choose, they're for everybody. And we've seen over the last few weeks that even the commands that we thought we could distance ourselves from, do not murder, for example, it pulls us right in because it's not so much about murder. Murder is an outworking of the, of the underlying teaching, which is you shall, have, you shall show dignity to life. There is sanctity to life that involves us all. There are design for life, the commandments. They're a, uh, they're, it's almost like a skeleton on which life should be built, that God has created, that if we followed these commandments, even as a society in modern day, then our society would be much better for it. This command, if we can see it again, please, guys, this Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, is often translated incorrectly by saying, do not lie. Thou shalt not lie. It doesn't actually say that. If you read it, it says, You shall not bear false witness, testimony against your neighbor. And, and Paul says, You must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Now, this is an interesting concept the Bible is trying to uh, present to us here, that God is speaking to us. And it's this idea of falsehood. Falsehood, uh, as Paul says it in Ephesians 4 verse 25, means when something is not what it seems. See, what God is saying to us is we need to live our life in front of people, our neighbors, our community, in such a way that what you see is what you get. 
that we are authentically living life, that everything is in alignment, that our private and public worlds are in alignment, that when our neighbors see and hear and and hear from us, and it's a court term, that they will actually get a true testimony, that what you see is what you get. We are authentic Christians. So this idea of falsehood, again, is when something is not what it seems. I need to confess to you that as a church, we've been taking part in some quite significant cover-up and spin-mongering. And I feel like this morning is a good time to share that because we're talking about not having a false testimony. It happens most Sunday mornings. It's happened this morning, I noticed. And it surrounds this corner of the church over here. That specifically little black screen right there. Now, I don't know how many of you noticed the numbers appearing, 593, earlier on this morning. Did you see that? What that's connected to is a back room way, way over there. Now, there's all sorts of potential chaos happening over there. But it was in our peace and gentleness and beautiful baby dedication, completely oblivious because it's, this is the public stage. That is the private stage. Personally, I think it'd be a lot more fun is rather than having a number appear if a child is freaking out back over there in the nursery, I think we should have the child's name, the parent's name, and exactly what the child is doing right now just to make us all feel a little bit better about ourselves, and then we can maybe judge the parent on their parenting techniques. I I don't know. So Tom and Louise, maybe we could arrange that, that we could just get it fitted on there. We're covering up very nicely because we're distanced away from the backstage. Public stage, backstage. It's very interesting because we all have a front stage and a backstage. We all have a public world and a private world. And this command is saying there shouldn't be a difference. In fact, the public world is determined by the private world. The front stage, we work really hard at. We're polished. We want to project an image and we, we feel pressure to make sure that people think that we've got it all together. We want to come over confident and we want to come over right and, and like we just want to hide what's going on backstage. Because backstage is chaotic Backstage is maybe if you have them, the hurts and pain and shame and guilt. The falling apart happens backstage. But we work hard on presenting everything's fine, especially in this culture, especially Canadians. And I'm just going to say it as a Brit who is also now Canadian, so I need to be careful. This isn't a criticism because I think you'll agree. We're really good, and I can say we now, thank you, Jesus, that I am Canadian. We're really good and we're at presenting the front stage. And we do it most days. Hey, Glenn. Hi. How are you? Good. Standard answer. Good. Or as I've said before, the Christian F word, fine. Everything's fine. Don't scrape away at the fine. Just hear that I'm fine. Because we get a bit panicky if somebody actually goes, actually, no, things aren't that good. I'm glad you asked. Oh, um, really? Uh, well, maybe you should make an appointment with Pastor Glenn and he'll listen to that. But right now I've got to go because I was kind of hoping that your answer was just good like everybody else so I can get on with my life. That's the kind of culture we live in. And we, in Britain, we don't say, how are you? We don't really care enough. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, okay. That's it. But at least in Canada, we give the impression that we care. Now, that doesn't mean every time somebody says, hey, how are you, that they're not interested. But you understand what I mean. We have a public world and a private world. 
And the private world, the backstage is well hidden because often it's too risky to share. It's too risky to show because we don't want people to make determinations and assumptions about what might be going on that might make you change your thinking about me. So here's what God is saying in this command. There should be no private and public world of a difference. Your testimony, your outside world should reflect exactly what's going on in the backstage world. So that when you're actually living your life in front of your neighbor, you're not having to put a show on. You're not having to act like everything's fine. You're actually just reflecting what God is doing in your life. You've heard the term maybe called WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. Oftentimes, in our culture, it's, we put an N in there. What you see is not what you get. The other day, I had an interesting experience that gives a great illustration of exactly what I'm talking about. And you need to understand that when I present this public view, this is me showing you my private world in a way that I hope you won't judge and, and think too badly of. In fact, Sarah only found out this, about this yesterday, and, and after she'd finished rolling about on the floor laughing, uh, I forgave her. Um, well, I went to Tim Hortons the other day for a date with my youngest son, Jack, and uh, we decided that we were going to play Guess Who, and so we had the board game. It was just after work, I, 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 after his school, sorry, I picked him up, we got into the car, and, uh, and so we were driving to Tim Hortons. We got to Tim Hortons just by Savon, and as I'm getting out of the car, now, I hope you don't judge that you think that I am uh, too overweight, but my top button of my pants came off. Went, bing, I felt it go because my zip, and this is me really opening up to you now, please. My zip is not one of those lockable zips, and I, for some reason, forgot to put a belt on that this morning. So my life is now getting very chaotic. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to say to Jack, hey, we can't do our date. Um, that's, you know, because daddy's pants are coming down. Poor kid, memories of which he will need more counseling than he already does. So I decided, you know what, I can deal with this. So I got out of the car and I immediately realized, no, no, this is not going to be easy. I had my briefcase because I didn't want to leave my computer in the car. I had a guess who game. I had a nine-year-old chaotic Jack running around the car lot. And I had a pair of pants that were coming down. And so I had both hands in one hand pocket, guess who. And I go into Tim Hortons. I don't think Tim Hortons has seen a busier day. Especially that Tim Hortons. There was just crammed, filled with people. So I think it's okay. If I want to keep my hand in my pocket, then I can keep my pants up. It's all going to be fine. Otherwise, these people are going to have a day they will never forget. <laughs> Especially the two or three people who go to this church who were in there at the time as well. Hi. Oh, no. I thought this was fine until I realized I was going to have to carry drinks, donuts, Carol uh, Jack, briefcase. And like, I thought, I'm going to need both hands here. And so I took the risk, and it was fine. I got to my table. And I sat there trying to think about my escape for the rest of the time while I played Guess Who. Here's the reality and the illustration. Sometimes we live life a little bit like that. We're so desperately trying hard just to keep things together and keep things up. And the world just keeps on handing you more things. More things to add to your plate for you to increase in the falsehood and your false testimony. Pretending that everything is fine when all the time people don't realize that actually things are at the brink of chaos. For me and Tim Horton's real chaos. Desperately trying to hold things together. For us to really, and I realized this as I studied this passage this week, please listen to this. Our private worlds, 
your private life, your private thoughts, what you think about most of the time, what you look at, what you incline towards is who you really are. Everything else, falsehood. Because who you really are, God is saying your private world, whether you are a Christian here this morning or whether you're just, this is the first time in a long time you've been in church, we're all the same. This is not, a, this is not an over-biblicalized, spiritualized concept. We're all trying really hard to make sure people don't understand what's actually going on. There's some in this room who cry themselves to sleep. There's some in this room who don't want to wake up. There's some in this room who don't want to get out of bed. There's some in this room that the outward seems to be all together while the, the backstage is falling apart. What happens backstage, what happens in the private world is who you really are. And it will actually determine not only what other people think of you, but it will determine your state, your emotional state, your, your, uh, how you see life. It gives you a lens with which you look at life through. You see, God is giving this as a command because he's saying the real design of life is for you to be able to have a private world that what you see is what you get in such a way that you can live confidently and free and represent Christians, represent Jesus to your neighbor in an authentic way. And you're going to see as I preach through this as quick as I possibly can that it pulls everybody in because we all want this. We all want to be confident and free and, and, and feeling like we have purpose and feeling like that everything is together. We're not having to cover up all the time, that life is not falling apart and we're just putting a really thick veneer of makeup on it in the hope that people don't see the wrinkles. And for us to really understand it, I think we need to see what the very first lie was. We really need to understand what falsehood really is. Let's go right back to the first lie where Satan, and whether you believe in the Bible or not, just listen to the concept for a second and see whether you think I'm right. We believe as Christians that Satan came and his tactic with Adam and Eve right at the beginning of time was to present to them an uncaring God, a God who was trying to limit them, a God who was trying to hold them back. Did God really say, you know what, the reason he doesn't want you to touch that, to eat from that tree is because he knows if you do that you will become like him. He's just trying to hold you back. He doesn't care enough for you. You should just take control, plunge in and eat of the tree that Adam and Eve had been told that they must not eat. The lie of lies, by the father of lies, was that God does not care. Not care enough for them just to have the freedom that he was saying they truly deserve. Friends, many, many people believe that same lie today. Many people in our culture believe that God does not care. They might not verbalize it, but they live it like that. And this is what it sounds like. Well, you know what? I don't want to believe too much in God because he'll take away my freedom. Realizing that freedom actually in reality is enslavement to what you think is giving you freedom. So money, we believe, gives us freedom, but in actuality, enslaves us because we feel like we have to do, we have to work, we've got to, got to, got to serve this money. So we don't think God cares enough to be able to look after us effectively and actually bring us freedom. We want to hold on to it. Maybe you don't believe God cares because you've experienced hurt in the past. And how can God be a loving God when this fill-in-the-blank happened to me? 
Or maybe it's my life hurts right now. Where is God? He doesn't care. These are all the lie of lies that Satan came with Adam and Eve to, and they believed. And as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, it was interesting because Eve said to Satan, God has told us that we're not to touch or eat from the tree of life. God never said that. He never said anything about not touching it. So already Eve is lying. So, so Satan comes with a lie. Eve buys into it and starts lying straight away and then pulls Adam into the whole thing as well. And they all sin. And as soon as they sin, they hide. They've developed a public world and a private world. They hide. They're filled with shame. They project a false reality. Friends, it's echoed all through generation to generation. We project a false reality, all based on this idea that God doesn't care enough to actually break into our lives and do something miraculous and care enough that he shows us love. We believe the lie and we project this falsehood. We hide the shame and the guilt. We develop a backstage and a front stage. And they became masters of falsehood, Adam and Eve. And we've done exactly the same. And so what are the results? What are the consequences of falsehood? Where we're so desperately trying to hide what's really going on. There are two very obvious biblical consequences that this scripture shows us. The first one is that we have personal consequences. When we live a lie, when we're projecting a falsehood, when we're breaking this command, we're actually affecting ourselves personally. See, a chaotic private world, a world that is in chaos, results in an uncomfortable and joyless experience. Because regardless of what we're projecting, there's this sense of emptiness that the private world is creating inside of us. And the more false we feel we are, the worse it feels. And we get into this cycle of falsehood. And God is saying, you're not to live like that. I just feel like we're covering up all the time. I've told this story many, many times. And some of you have heard it, but it's a, it's a good one. And the reason I like to share it is because it involves a very good friend of mine. And so any opportunity I can share uh, about it, then, uh, then, I, then it makes me, feel, makes me feel good about myself. What can I say? Helps me in my public existence, apparently. But my friend who uh, will remain nameless, Andy Barkley Watts, um, he was uh, training to be a pastor and uh, had been asked to go and visit a couple in the church. And so Andy, who is a lovely man of God, I mean, he is a genuinely very, very nice man. And he was wanted to do a really good job. He's a young man, early 20s, and he goes and visits this house. He puts on smart clothes, he tells me, and, and he arrives at this house. Now, this couple, lovely couple in the church, but they have everything. Everything has its place in the house. It's a very nice house. And in Britain, uh, we, we don't, maybe more now, but there was tend to be not much hardwood. It was mainly carpets, thick carpets. And if you were quite wealthy, often those carpets, you didn't have kids and quite wealthy, those carpets were often a very thick, very light kind of material. That's important for you to remember. So he knocks on the door and they invite him in and they make a real fuss of him and they invite, he invites him into the, into the lounge, as we call it in Britain, and he sat there and his leather couches. It's this beautiful house and he's on his best behavior. He's like, I've got to make a good impression. I want to, want to make sure these people feel loved and cared for. I'm, I'm, I'm pastoring. This is it. This is, this is where the rubber meets the road. 
sat there, and they're fussing around this older couple and say, would you like a cup of tea or a coffee? And they say, actually, it wouldn't be coffee, it's Britain. Would you like a cup of tea? And they say, oh, yes, that would be lovely, and they go off. And so uh, Andy, and you're going to have to move the camera around a bit here, he, he sits on the edge of this, of this leather couch, and he's on his best behavior. And, uh, and, then, he, and then he looks down, and he says, he smells something. And he looks down and sees that, because in Britain you don't take your shoes off when you enter a house. That's an important point for some reason. That's just the way it is. You just keep your shoes on. And he kept his shoes on and then he saw footprints going from his feet of a dog jobby <laughs> all the way out into the hallway. He could see it in this white cream thick pile carpet. And he's like, oh no. And he says, Glenn, I, I just, I don't know what to do. I'm sat there and I see that they end in my shoes. I brought dog muck into the house. What am I going to do? And so his first response was, can I shift the furniture around? I was like, why would you think that? And hide. Like, just say, hey, cup of tea, lovely. You know, you can't do that because it stinks. So he's like, man, what am I going to do? I can't clean it. And he just sat there and sweating. And this couple come in. And the first thing he says, I'm really sorry. But look, I brought in dog jobby, as we say. Book in Britain. Look, help, I'll do anything. I'll clean it. And they were lovely about it. They were really, really kind, at least to his face. They were really, really nice. And he said, I sat there for like what seemed like an eternity socializing small talk with this couple while the smell just filled the room and he just said it was the worst visit ever. You know what? (laughs) As silly and as wonderful as that story is, there's only so much shifting around of furniture and cover-up that we're all capable of. There's only so much shifting and cover-up of things in our lives that will cover the cracks and cover the, forgive me for saying it, the muck. The essence of it will fill your life. The essence of it will fill your life. So only image management rules will fail. And so you start lying. Because Paul says falsehood comes before lies. Lies come as a result of living falsely. You read the scripture. This falsehood produces lies because we're lying to try and keep the pretense up. God says we don't get to do that as Christians. That's not the way life has been designed. Start feeling empty inside. And we know, don't we? We know that this is true. We can't escape it. When our private world is in chaos, it gnaws at us. We know it's true. And then Pastor Glenn enthusiastically comes bouncing into your life and says, Hey, you should do some more ministry in church. Join a community group. Maybe you could host a community group. Maybe you could come and help. And there's greeters. And there's all these different ways that you can serve. And because your private world is in so much chaos, you just think, oh, no. Jesus said that fruit comes as a result of the roots, that the roots will produce the fruit. And so as a Christian, your natural outworking, please listen, in your Christian life is to want to serve. You want to be involved in community. You want to be involved in what God has placed in our community as a church. It's like, use me. How do you want me to be used in your church, God? So if your natural inclination is to turn and run the other way, then it's maybe just part of the cover-up. So you know 
the way things should be. And so when I come along or when somebody comes along and says, hey, volunteer this way, you kind of go, oh, no. Because you know what? Listen, it just means that you're going to have to shift around more furniture to try and cover up what's actually going on. Just gives you more stuff to do to try and cover up what, who is, what is really happening in your private world. See, those people who are aligned, where the private world is in order, it's not hard work. Life is not hard work. If you enter into deception, you enter into falsehood, and you follow lies, and you're telling lots of lies to keep this falsehood up, it's exhausting. It's tiring. It's joyless. And so you pull back from anything that might highlight that you aren't who you say you are. See, as Christians, we're called to be representatives of truth and life to our neighbors. And this is why this scripture says, you be a good witness to your neighbor. You don't enter into falsehood. You need to represent Christ well. Friends, your private world controls and defines you personally. Secondly, and this is going to be hard for some of you to hear. There's good news coming. Bear with me. Cake, for one thing. Anything that ends with cake has got to be good. Thank you, Tom and Louise, for that. It affects you personally. And it affects your relationships. See, in these scriptures, if you read it, truth and strong relationships are linked. Both times, God says neighbors. Paul says neighbors, your community, your one body. If you are living in falsehood, your community and relationships are going to be affected. I really thought hard about whether or not to say this to you, and I really believe that it's true. Listen, if you struggle with your relationships and if you struggle with your friendships... If you struggle keeping friends, if you struggle in your relationship, even in the closest circles, I want to suggest to you and ask you the question, is your private world in order? Or are you living in falsehood? Are you hiding yourself? Are you projecting a false image, a false witness? Because insincerity and falsehood and lying and, and fakeness results in a breakdown of, of true trust and relationships because people just can sense it. I, I, this morning, the youth band and Lyndon were brilliant, weren't they? And Lyndon was just great. He's reliving his youth. He loves it. It's great. But they were great. Have you ever been in a situation where if somebody starts playing, especially in church, that if you just, it, you can just feel the fake? There's an inauthenticity. There's a, there's a, it seems to be more about them than about God. And it, you can't put your finger on why. You just feel it. It's the same in our relationships. If you are not authentic and if you are just false, and if you're just trying to cover up what's really going on, it's a bad witness because people just pick up on it. It's like you're hiding yourself in sincerity and falsehood. So I want to say that maybe if you are struggling in your relationships or friendships or if, you, if any of that area, ask yourself the question, what's your private world like and are you desperately trying to cover it up? There's a, a picture I want to show you. If it goes, this, this castle, um, um, I, I had the opportunity to take my girls to, um, to Britain in the summer and we, uh, when I was teaching in North Wales, I would actually drive past... Uh, th- was it three or four castles? Four, I think. Four different castles. You get to the point where we go, oh, castle. <laughs> oh, well. 
This castle is actually very close to where I used to live, where I grew up as a child, and uh, it, well, not when, as a teenager anyway, and uh, it's called, in typical Welsh fashion, it's called Gwych Castle, G-W-Y-R-C-H, no vowels required, Gwych, Gwych Castle, and this castle, as you can see, is pretty castle isn't it? I mean, it, it looks like a castle. There's lots of pictures. You can Google it. It's, it's a very nice, it's offset into a hill. It's beautiful. You drive past it and you go, oh, castle. Except this castle was only, it's a new castle because it was new, not the town new castle, but a fairly modern castle because it was built in 1812. And as a Brit, you kind of snub your nose at that. Go, 1812, I've got dust under my bed that's older than that. 1812's not old. Pretty sure I go to school with somebody who was born then. Uh, That's not old, 1812. So we don't actually class that as a castle. It's called a fake castle or a faux castle. But it's a lot of years old. 200 years, am I right, Scott? You're the teacher. Colleen's nodding. 200 years, that's old, but it's fake. In fact, if you go in that castle, you will find it's not safe to be around. It wasn't built like the castle further up the road that's 1,000 years old that's still standing. It's not safe to be around. It won't last. It's crumbling quickly. Apparently, it's one of the most haunted buildings in Wales. Never tested that out, but there you go. Drive past it and its ghosts. It's a poor investment. They've been trying to sell this castle for a long time, and it's almost fallen through. You'd be amazed at how cheap that castle is to buy. So I encourage you. You want to buy a castle? There you go. It's pretty cheap. It's a poor investment. People don't want to buy it. It's hard work to visit because you are always conscious that a wall might fall in and kill you. Gwerch Castle. Sounds good, doesn't it? As a kid, we did visit it. We did clamber around it. We did cause havoc and, you know, and, and we would have got probably arrested if we'd got caught. But it's decaying quickly. It's fake. In Britain, you will actually find some walls that are being held up by steel trusses behind just so that the the image from this side looks good. There's nothing behind. Some of us have relationships like that. You see, if you are working hard at keeping the fake together, you're working hard to keep the public separate from the private, you're not safe to be around. People can't trust what you say. You won't last, you'll crumble. There's cracks already starting to appearing. You're a poor investment. People will try and invest time in you, and it will just come bouncing back because there just seems to be an inauthenticity about you. You're hard work to be around. Luke chapter 18, verse 17 says this, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. See, in summary... To this section, to be an authentic, truth-telling, good witness is the design God intends you for you. There's a purity and a sincerity and a beauty about somebody whose private world is in order. And they just shine with it. They're pleasant to be around. There's a confidence about them. They're loving and kind. They're unbiased and caring. They're trustworthy and objective. You want to be with them. They're nice to visit. They're not hard work. They're a good investment because their private world is something they're happy to say, you know what? This is what's going on. And it's Jesus-centered. It's God-centered. There's a purity about it. For those people who are struggling with their private world, it's the opposite. 
So briefly and quickly, how do we fulfill this command? How do we represent Christ to our neighbors well? How do we be authentic representations of Jesus? Unapologetically, confidently showing people the love of God around us. Not being hesitant in case they might see what's really going on in our lives. The only way we can face the world with confidence and truth is to have order brought to our private worlds. See, what we do in our culture is exactly what Adam and Eve did in theirs is we seek external things to try and hide what's actually really going on. So we look to the public world to try and fix our feelings inside. If I could just get this other job, then my private world will be fine. If I could just get more money, then all my issues will go away. If I could just get that person, then all my issues will go away. If I could, just, uh, if I could make this look better, all my issues will go away. Now, as silly as it sounds, am I right? We look at the public external factors to try and hide what's going on. They're branches. Adam and Eve hid behind branches. We just get bigger and more elaborate ones with more wheels and shinier in our culture. See, David, after he sinned, cried, create in me, God, a clean heart. He didn't try and change the external circumstances. He said, God, change me. Change me. After Adam and Eve sinned, their hearts were affected and they needed rescuing. And one of the most beautiful scriptures in the Bible is it says that God went out on a rescue mission. He went for a search. You can read it in Genesis 3. It says that he went out and he said, where are you? Can I just tell you, God knew exactly where they were because he's God. When God asks man questions or women questions in the Bible, it's not so much about him wanting to know the answer. It's about highlighting the answer to them. Adam and Eve, where are you? Do you know what he does? Is he obliterates the lie. The lie that he doesn't care. He reached out to them. He went searching for them. And that theme is all through the Bible. God searching for you, reaching out to you. And Adam and Eve's response is really interesting. Like, I'm here. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see, when God goes on a rescue mission, it cost him. Rescue missions today, I did some research, cost millions. If you get lost on a mountain or, you know, if you, if you build, put all that cost together of all the times the rescue missions happen, it's hugely expensive to taxpayers. It cost God to rescue Adam and Eve. It cost God to reach out and rescue you from your heart, from your private world, so you could live what you see is what you get. It cost him so much, it was cosmically expensive to him. And the expense was called Jesus. Jesus came and he gave his life. He absorbed the pain, he absorbed the suffering, he absorbed the sin and the shame that you are trying to cover up. He said, just give that to me. And it'll die with me and I'll give you what David said, a clean heart. God does care. You see that scripture again? I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. Here's what I want you to think about. God reaches out. God initiates. God searches. God sent his son. Adam's response was that he totally and completely did away with the cover-up. He told the truth to himself. He said, I'm afraid. 
Some of you are terrified that people will find out what's actually going on in your world because you are fearful of how they might respond. You're fearful that if you actually deal with this private world, that you're actually going to have to make some changes. You're going to have to let go of control. And Adam said, I hid myself. He stopped deceiving himself. The Wesleyans were famous for having community groups, small Bible studies, and, and the community group leader, and maybe we should start doing this, community group leaders, they'd sit in their circles. It's very similar to community groups, very, very similar. And they would go around the group, and the leader would say, how is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? Don't tell me how your week was. I don't care, forgive me, about your week. The Wesleyans didn't. Tell me how it is with your private world. And for somebody to sit there in relationship and community to go, actually, glad you asked, and be honest, that's the first step of realizing that the first step of cleaning your private world up is to recognize that you need help. See, in Romans 5 and verse 8, it says, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't need better branches to hide behind. We need our private worlds dealing with. David recognized it was a heart issue. He recognized we needed forgiveness. He recognized he needed God to come in and clean this up. And friends, we're exactly the same. But we have something that David didn't have. We have Jesus. And it says there in that scripture that God shows his love to us that even before our life has been cleaned up, he loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus that while we were still sinners, it's not that we have to get our external sorted before he loves us. He loves you. He cares for you. You might not feel like it, but I'm telling you the truth. He cares for you. And so we come and we say, God, I can't fix this. I've thrown cars and money and relationships and sex and computer addictions and and relationships and desperation for friendships. I've thrown everything I can think about to it. And it's not working. God, forgive me. And the Bible says that he is a good and faithful and patient God who will forgive. And not only did Jesus die, but he brings new life. Just think for a second what that clean slate, that fresh start might feel like for some of you. And Christians, here's my hope for you. Church family, here's my hope for you. That you would remember that you serve a God who cares and cared deeply enough to reach out for you. That even in your worst, he loves you. On your best day, he loves you. And on your worst day, he loves you just the same. I pray that you would remember. Here's my hope that you would examine yourselves. Are you living in falsehood? Are you resisting the change from the Holy Spirit because of what that might mean? Are you confidently representing God unapologetically? Showing Christ to other people. Are you willing to serve? Are you willing to get involved in ministry? Are you holding back because you're afraid? And it just seems hard work to do more cover-up. I would like you to think about that. My hope is that you would regularly seek to abide in him and spend time with him. Seeking to have your roots in him. So that the truth of life will just emerge naturally from your relationship. As he cleans up your private world. And that you would confidently enjoy being yourself, unapologetically, 
enthusiastically with nothing to hide because God is the one that is dealing with your private world, not your cover-up. You would not be ashamed to align yourself with him because he was not ashamed to align himself with you and your stuff. For those of you who are still thinking about Christianity and Jesus, I urge you to consider, is what you're doing working? Is it cleaning up your private world? Are you truly able to fix yourself? I think the reality of many, many, many millions and billions before you have proved that we can't. Christ stood in front of Pilate just before he died, and Pilate asked Jesus, just before he killed him, he said, what is the truth? Jesus has stood right in front of Pilate, and he had said just days before, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the way, because of what I'm going to do on the cross, that's where real life is found, and it was stood right in front of Pilate, and Pilate is looking past Jesus, saying there must be another answer to what is actually going on in my life, and he was stood right there. God searches for you, friends. Are you going to be like Adam and go, you know what, here I am. I'm messed up. I was afraid. I need your help, Jesus. Because he is ready and able and powerful to save, forgive, and give you a clean and fresh start. That's good news. Good news that we all need to hear. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I love your word. God, I love that when I read your Bible, it reads me. I'm exposed by your word. I see myself in its pages. And that, Lord, as it exposes who I really am and what I really feel oftentimes, Lord, as it does that, it also gives me hope that there is an answer And there's a joy to be found. And Lord, I pray as a church of people who call South their home, Lord, I pray that we would be people of truth. That, Lord, we would not be ashamed to present to you our private world and seek forgiveness. Lord, let it be that we would be good testimonies to our neighbors and our colleagues. That, Lord, that they wouldn't be surprised when they find out that we're Christians. Let our relationships be strong, Jesus, because our relationship is strong with you and and we're confident in you. Lord, I pray that our private worlds would continually be changed and transformed by you, just as you promised. Lord, let us be people of the word, abiding in you and enjoying you. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you, who are questioning and wondering, Thank you, God, that you search us out. And Lord, I pray like Adam. Say, here I am, Lord. I don't know what this means, but help me. Forgive me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.